Welcome to the Blueprint Podcast, where we throw out the old blueprint so you can become who you were always meant to be. I'm your host, Jason Smith, and if you haven't already, make sure you click the subscribe button and share this podcast with your friends on social media and tag me in it at jbirdfit. Today, I have a very special guest for you, Dr. Nicole LaPura. Dr. Nicole LaPura is a holistic psychologist trained at Cornell University new school for social research and the philadelphia school of psychoanalysis she is the founder of the global community healing membership self-healer circle and the author of the number one new york times bestseller how to do the work how to meet yourself and how to be the love you seek welcome to the blueprint podcast and thank you for saying yes to being a guest on the show now i'm no i'm no craig siegel with introductions, but I'm so grateful to have you here today to share with us your new book and the third in the how-to series, How to Be the Love You Seek. Thank you so much, Jason. I'm honored to be here and tr truly grateful for the invitation. Now, what's interesting about your work is it's a huge part of my own story. You gave me language for things that I was experiencing on the job and in my personal life. I was a police officer and had the opportunity to serve in a few different capacities. And one of those was as crime scene. And you can imagine the experiences we would go through both as a police officer and an individual. You almost put yourself in other people's shoes and wonder how did we end up here? So you're left with these deeply intimate experiences and images, but also the words and notes that get left behind that brought me to your work, Joe Dispenza's work, Wayne Dyer, and countless others, as you can see by all the books behind me. So I created my account to focus on loving yourself, but I do it with humor by sharing common interpersonal relationship dynamics that challenge us the most through the lens of attachment styles. Some people love me for it, and there's others that just don't, but I can't thank you enough for doing the work that you do. I'm so grateful that you've been resonating and that what I speak about has helped uh, give you language. I know for me how important that has been myself, kind of in my own journey, evolving in different conceptual language that it helped me understand myself in different ways and, of course, really created a pathway for healing. So when I think about the work that you used to do um, and how it informs and just I giggle anytime I, I see humor being used because... <laughs> I do think it's a, a testament to, for many of us, the other side of humor, the deep suffering that many of us who are able to now find humor in, in things have come from. So thank you for the work that you put out into the world too. Thank you. Now I'm interested in your book writing process because did you have this all mapped out from the very beginning that you were going to do three books in a series? It's funny, even hearing you introduce it and hearing others introduce it as like the third book in the how-to series. And, and yeah. I think the answer very much is is yes on a deep kind of informed by my own journey trajectory type of way. It's been mapped out to the extent that it the three books in and of themselves really follow along in terms of the evolution that I saw in myself individually and in not only the individual clients that I once worked with now within the community. Though going in and even a decade ago, you would have never heard me talking about a desire and interest or even a belief in my ability to be able to write a book. So right. I say that to say that um, books were not anything that I imagined would be on my path, though once my path unfolded and I saw the impact 
that writing books and my own journey could have, then yes, these three different topical areas, if you will, felt very intuitive as a sequence. And again, with the language that we use, I love that you call it an unfolding because we're, it means that you're open to experiences and that we're allowing things to come in for us that so many of us, we put up these walls or these barriers or you know, we push these things away because we feel like it's not meant for us. And it's something that I've been going through even with my own platform because it's a transition. You go from being this one person, you transition into the context of content creator, uh, coach, and then you really have to define like, well, what does that mean for me? Like, who am I as this new person? And what does that look like? I'm smiling because I think so much of what you're describing really is emblematic to Jason of the healing journey. And I just love the concept of, of blueprint as you talk about here, kind of right, um, identifying, knowing our old, our programs. And I think what you beautifully, very wisely just spoke, that applies to us as individuals. I think there's so many aspects of our habitual identity or that autopilot, I think is some of us already have fondly grown to, to hate that, that little analogy. But in reality, I do think that there is a lot of um, kind of deconstructing of identities and transitioning and then really coming up against our physiological ability to grow, evolve, change in any circumstances, really, though our physiological desire to remain in those old habitual patterns because there's a sense of, of real safety there. So I think what you're beautifully describing is the journey of living that many of us come into contact with as we become more and more aware of ourselves, of our programming, how that's impacting us as individuals, how that's impacting the work then that we put out into the world and really then the onion peeling analogy of what I believe healing is is to be. Yeah, we love our analogies, but they're, yes. <laughs> they're, they're so useful in doing the work and describing how things actually look. You begin to create this mental image. Now, for me, the blueprint is all about throwing out the old blueprint because it's clearly not mm -hmm. working. We were, we were told to do all these wonderful and amazing things. And if you just do what I did, then you're going to make it too. And all these things are going to be wonderful. You'll get married, have kids, you know, two and a half, whatever, in a three car <laughs> garage. And it's just like, Okay. And, and then you go to do these things. You find yourself at like 30, 40, 45. And you're like, hey, yeah, this uh, this really isn't working for me. And I want to dive in a little bit deeper into the safety of the known, which you gave us just a minute ago and what that actually means. For me, just even talking of, of my own reckoning, if you will, entering into my 30s, getting objectively to what I believe to be the final right? Checked mark of accomplishment. And there had been many up until that point. I had had, you know, many years in schooling, which gifted me the opportunity to receive the degree, to have the private practice that I wanted, to be able to choose really intentionally where I wanted to have that practice, deciding to return to my hometown of Philadelphia to be near my family, which was very much important to me, having a successful relationship. And what I found myself feeling in this life that I had spent decades to create was so detached, so unfulfilled to the extent that I would fantasize about running away, about leaving this entire world that I created, you know, day after day. And I really, you know, felt shameful at first, if I'm being honest, especially because I knew that the life I'd created from the outside was one that, you know, 
many would have the idea that I should be happy. And I had that same internal expectation. What is wrong with you, Nicole, that you can't find fulfillment in finally getting to the end of everything that you want it to accomplish? And what I've come to realize is that all of this habitual living that many of us are doing, right, was formed, even the habits and patterns that create, you know, our beliefs that drive us sometimes into this endless seeking of achievement was formed in a very early environment within our earliest relationships and to ensure, and this again goes back to our body, which for me was a foundational learning in the human experience. And then of course allowed me to create incredible transformation in terms of my own emotional wellness. But our, our developing, you know, infant, which needs or is completely dependent on other individuals is, is like a sponge and because their need for survival, our need for someone to show up in service of meeting our needs is so strong, as the adaptable creature that we are, what we will do, and this kind of ties all these concepts together, is we will become exactly who we have to become, modifying ourselves, suppressing certain aspects of our experience, highlighting others such as achievement, to be as safely and securely connected to ensure that that caregiver, however present or absent they might be, right? increase the likelihood that they will show, continue to show up in service of us. So really simply, we become our habits because there's a sense of familiarity. There's that deep-rooted feeling of connection, which all of us as humans need. We are interpersonal creatures up until the day we die. We can only exist in relationships with other people, though the existing many of us are doing are still wearing those same masks, compromising ourselves in the same way, which is why it gets very frustrating for the many of us who have accumulated a lifetime of outcomes that we now want to avoid, maybe even seeking help like myself, you know, being in a traditional therapy um, model for a very long time, I was working with clients who had, had all this insight and awareness and knew what these old programs and blueprints were and had the insight and intention to change them. Yet what we continued to come up against was that habits and the familiarity of our, ha familiarity of our habits and how they impact our body. And anytime we step, even if it's in the direction that we want to create our life to be outside of those familiar habits and patterns, our nervous system will start to go off. It will start to send signals that in this unknown experience that I'm now having, could the possibility of something threatening or stressful be? So before long, I, I meet that resistance, as I call it. It can come with endless thoughts in our mind, convincing ourselves to stop doing the things that you know, we want to do, it can land in our bodies where we just feel so uncomfortable, so overwhelmed. And before we know it, we're right back into that familiar autopilot zone. Yeah. I just can't stop. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's, it's never going to change. We hear that so often. And especially in my comment section. And one of the biggest statements that I hear the most is from people who are more anxiously attached. And it always comes up, why do I have to do all the heavy lifting? And so I'm curious what your response to that would be rooted in how to be the love that you seek. I think that, so, and the beginning of, of this relational book that, you know, how to be the love you seek focuses on, it begins as most of my work does, which is, I think, an empowering shift, right, that we can make, which is taking personal responsibility. And I think sometimes, you know, built, beginning a, a, a relational book, really highlighting first and foremost, 
the primary relationship that all of us have, which is to ourselves first and foremost, right? I think that highlights the answer to any question, whether it's anxious attachment, avoidant attachment, whatever dysfunctional pattern that I'm experiencing typically in relationship after relationship. While I think it's very natural, and I have done this too in the past, which is to, to um, imagine that the problem is the relationship right, that we're picking, the person. It's not the perfect partner. There could be a better one out there, right? You're causing these issues in my relationship, so I will just find someone where these issues are no so, longer present. It's always that one. <laughs> it's always that one. And I'm sharing this from my own lived experience yeah. of coming to a similar conclusion in all of my relationships, which was that I didn't feel emotionally connected, determining that it was some aspect or characteristic of this partner that I was with at the time, you know, that created that emotional disconnection or their inability really to emotionally connect with me. And I would continue on to find a more perfect partner until I began to explore and understand for myself what role I was playing more just totally in the relationships that I was in. And I think naturally, right, that shift from well, it's not the world out there that's causing me to feel. And this was a transformational shift in my own learning around just what emotions were in general. Because I think this is another area where we assume things outside of ourselves cause our emotions, right? You did this and so I feel. You didn't do this and now I feel this other emotion. And in reality, as, as I talk about in the book too, really deconstructing emotions are, of course, they're colored by what's happening outside of us. They're also colored by the interpretation that's happening in our minds or the meaning that we're assigning to what's happening to us, which is greatly impacted by those earliest experiences. So if we really want to simplify what I just described, the emotions we're having in response or reaction to the relationships we're in are still a byproduct of our own personal experience. So now this puts us, I think, back into a the empowering shift, I think, which can be really difficult to say, oh, wait a minute, right? For me, you're not, the world isn't causing me to feel emotionally disconnected. There's some habit I've brought from my childhood, which was for me being disconnected myself from my emotions, that's creating this recurring feeling. Now, not only do I have a different understanding, now I can be a little bit more empowered because I can see the role that I'm playing. And I think it's very natural that to then have a instinctual feeling around all of the work and the effort and even hearing maybe me speak this to you on a podcast right now what do you mean nicole i'm i'm the problem and i'm therefore the solution i'm yeah. i'm not i didn't cause this i don't want to have to do all of the work to to heal but we are the common denominator we are the common denominator and if i think more more problematically if we continue to wait on others around us to change or the world around us to change so that we can feel differently the reality is we're going to be waiting a long time, if not forever, because while, again, we often think, hope, wish, desperately try to change other people in the world around us, yeah. we really only have the ability to take responsibility and to create change in our own life. And that's the expectation that so many of us have. And I want everybody to know that it's normal to experience this, but we want other people to change for us. We think that if we can change them, then everything in our life, all the solutions are going to come. Our life is going to get better. And it takes away and really disempowers you and disconnects you from yourself because you're relying on things that are outside of you for your own 
emotional well-being. And just to clarify, if there's anyone hearing this to mean, when people violate, overstep my boundaries, neglect me, give me emotional breadcrumbs or you know anything in between, this does not mean, well, I throw my hands up, I can't control them, I can't stop them, so therefore there is nothing I can do to keep myself safe and secure as I deserve to be. So the important shift is to understand and to understand really the concept of a boundary, right? Because in those moments where there's abuse, where there's violation, where there's neglect, the most empowering choice we can make is to put up that separation that we need to put up the boundary, sometimes to remove ourselves, which is a very, an action of empowerment from those circumstances. So I just always want to speak that because I think sometimes hearing someone say, right, we're not responsible, we can't change, can activate that kind of feeling of helplessness inside, which I think is natural when someone is abusing, violating, overstepping our boundaries or neglecting us in a very real way, even if that is the pattern that's repeated through our life. That's a testament to the early likely experience of victimization that had created that pattern. So it doesn't mean, again, that we were responsible for what had once happened to us, but the responsibility that we can now take is by identifying those violations, those acts of neglect, and by standing in or creating for the first time the boundary or the ability to move into safety and the security that we need as the adult that we now are. When does our nervous system really start to be conditioned? Is this something that begins in the womb? Yes. So our first environment, you know, you have heard me speak of environments and relationships now throughout several of these, these conversations. And it is important to understand that that first environment, that first relationship was when we were in utero. So in, in that womb and on the other side of development, it was mind-blowing, Jason, for me to learn that our nervous system, our brain and all of the different nerves that run through our body and allow us to physiologically function, continue to develop. So it begins developing in utero, so in someone else's body and their physical climate, impacted by what was happening externally in their world, in their relationships, which was greatly impacted by what happened in their childhood. Right. And in their in, in inner utero environment and what was happening in their early relationships. So again, just illustrating how these patterns are passed intergenerationally. And then once we are born as a physically now separate individual, our nervous system continues to develop and be impacted by the environment around us, ultimately by the decisions that then we've learned to make for ourselves as we march through that environment up through our mid 20s. So this is why we are so foundationally, and for me, as I spoke earlier, it was transformational to really begin to learn outside of what I learned in my program, which was the brain and nervous system exists. They connect the brain and the body. And that was pretty much the extent of, I'm really simplifying, but that was more or less what we were taught. We were not taught the foundational impact that the functioning of our nervous system create it right in these environments and the impact that then that would have on us as autonomous separate adults throughout our entire lifetime from what we come to think and believe about ourselves to how we express or navigate 
stressful or upsetting emotions. So that whole aspect of our emotional experience as humans to our simple ability and what it is that we feel safe to self-express or how we show up in the world. And that's greatly impacted by the things that we had to show more of or show less of in our childhood. So again, we retain all of these habits in that subconscious part of our mind, that autopilot that I referred to earlier. Many of us even coming to define ourselves based on these habits, which were really foundationally created by these earliest environments. And the empowering shift that I just want to mention here, while we know that developing is ha- development is happening well into our 20s, we also now know that we have the ability to change those neurobiological habits that have been wired into our body during that developmental time period throughout the entirety of our life. And that's the beautiful, hopeful piece of this because even as the many of us, myself included, come become very present of the impact of those early developmental years and how it's continuing to impact how we're showing up or our blueprint, if you will, in our current life, in our current relationships, we also now know that through intentional conscious choices, we can quite literally begin to lay some new neurobiological hardware and quite literally, as I've been saying throughout this conversation, transform our entire way of being. I absolutely love that. Number one, we get to be autonomous, separate adults. Um, That's definitely something that you have to teach yourself throughout the years and throughout the decades. And, you know, just the neuroplasticity that we can indeed change. So we hear people oftentimes say, well, this is just who I am and this is how I'm always going to be. And that's more of a fixed mindset. And it takes a long time to move away from that, to begin to develop the skills that, that you're missing, to be able to get to the point where you can say, okay, no, I can see that, that people can change. I can change. And I'm actually willing to do this. And all of this kind of goes back full circle. The belief in that fixed mindset that is when we're not conscious when all of these right mental interpretations, physiological shifts and changes driven by our nervous system are happening outside of our awareness, you do become, your lived experience reflects exactly the belief that I had and we kind of joked that many of us have, which is that the world right, has caused this. I am who I am and when these things happen, this is how I react. Because over time, we validated that expectation. Similar things have happened. They've passed through similar interpretations in our mind outside of our awareness. Similar physiological reactions have been underneath the surface of that mental framing of our circumstances, which have then compelled us to act in similar habitual ways. The same way at that very early time that we were modeled or based on the resources that were available to us to deal with those dysregulating moments. And now all of that is happening at warp speed for decades of our life outside of our awareness. So of course it's so natural that we come to identify as our habits because that's the only way we've known ourselves to be until we become conscious to all that's beneath the iceberg, if you will, another analogy. Yes. Right? And we have no other choice but to assume that we don't have choice because beneath that beneath that you know surface are is a very 
kind of compelling reactive system where we don't tune in until we're saying and doing the thing that we believe we can't avoid saying and doing. So consciousness, you'll always hear me cite that and go on and on about it as I'm doing right now because it yeah. is so foundationally key. When I become aware to all of this different process that's happening, now I really do have the possibility of entertaining. And you might be listening here right now and say, no, this is who I am. I've spent decades of my life like this. This is exactly who I'm meant to be. And it really does take kind of zooming out in terms of our awareness piece and really beginning to come in contact with those running narratives, with the different physiology that's living in our body. I mean, I think as humanity, we are getting more and more with endless opportunities to be disconnected from our physical presence. It's so easy to pick up a phone and scroll now. It's so easy to then get caught into reactive cycles about how people on the internet are making me feel and right, telling me who I am and who I'm not. Though when we become foundationally conscious, then we really truly can not only begin to deconstruct these blueprints that are running to call into question and more importantly, I think to live the embodiment of change because I'm the person I think many of us can be, we can read about inspirational transformations and changes from other people. I, I did that. I was fascinated by it. But there was always a little part inside of me that kind of was like, mm, good for you. Yeah. And entertaining the reason that I had concluded why I couldn't create. Right. I love that for you. That that's experience. Just, I want to tear work. them down as some yeah. too, but I'd be like, nice for you over there on that path. But here's the different reasons in my mind why I'm not going. Yeah. Cause you, you just can't see it. You don't know how to get yeah, there. You can't see it because you can't see all of the different things that are creating currently what's happening. You really do feel right at the, at the whim of everything else because you haven't tuned into, oh, well, the reason why this experience feels upsetting is not necessarily the objective experience. It's that mental interpretation. It's because of what my mind, the meaning my mind assigned. It's because of what's happening physiologically in my body. And then all of that will go right back to, okay, and how have I learned to manage and to make sense of these moments where I'm interpreting life in this way, where I'm feeling this way. And I think quite cool. So in past generations, what did it look like to self-regulate and co-regulate? And why is it so different now? Is it because of technology? I have my own opinion about texting, so we can get to that later. Yes. But <laughs> Yes. I think when I think of past and I think often of our ancestral lineage, right? Before modern life, yeah. I think about just the species of humanity, right? And how we've kind of existed, learned how to not only survive, but, you know, to pro proliferate. I, I don't necessarily want to use the word thrive because I know circumstances yeah. that many of us are continuing to live in are the farthest thing from thriving, but to be the species that we are now. And so I think about co-regulation, right? And this immaturity of our developing nervous system that I cited earlier. The fact that our nervous system is developing throughout our 20s, so for about two decades of our life, highlights the necessity, meaning we are born with the need to co-regulate. And as I referenced us earlier, we are interpersonal creatures. Our ability to connect, to gain support in those emotional connections 
we maintain that need for co-regulation, if you will, throughout our entire life. And back when we were living right in groups where we had access to more, not only physical logistical support for you know division of labor type purposes, we had access to emotional support. Right? We were living either in communities that were you know of related individuals or just close knit communities. Um, it's the kind of you know children are raised by a village type of mentality was the reality. There was support. Right, to turn to objectively and emotionally moments of co-regulation. I think with that way of living, there was a lot more of kind of natural ways we had to gather food and expend our energy. And so over time, many things have shifted from that community-based living has broken down for many different reasons. Right? We now live separate completely geographically, sometimes across the country or in different countries from family members. Otherwise, we're in separate homes, right? Really kind of not able to rely on many of us not even knowing the community outside of, outside of our home. I think technology and our ability, right, to remove ourselves from our body, to not move our bodies in the way that our natural human body needs to be moved. I think a lot of different circumstances have evolved that have created more of a possibility for separation and for dysregulation in our nervous system than for, I think, kind of what we are wired to want, to need, and to feel the most fulfilled, which is being grounded in our bodies, having access to communities, to other supportive individuals, understanding that our body is foundationally playing a role in terms of our mental wellness. So giving ourselves opportunities to to move and equally to rest. I think the other side of technology and achievement and all that is now possible is the limited ability or perceived ability to rest and take those moments of off. I think work schedules have changed. So again, I think that there's a mismatch that many of us are also equally becoming aware of in terms of how we can best most survive and thrive as being a human being and learning ways now to implement that type of lifestyle in even our current environmental circumstances. And just real quick, your thoughts on texting, because, you know, growing up in the eighties and nineties, we just didn't have, we didn't have this stuff. And so we're, our nervous systems are primed a little bit differently. And when we get to that place where we're constantly texting with somebody, for me, I know that it's kind of overwhelming at times where it just becomes too much. And then I put the phone aside. I don't want to deal with it necessarily. Um, is it good to be in constant contact with everyone around us all the time or to be giving a play by play of our experiences throughout the day to the people that are closest to us? It's funny, quick aside, I had a moment, I took a walk around my neighborhood and I know my neighborhood very well. It's a walk I do very often. And often when I'm walking, especially a quick walk like that, I don't bring my phone. And one particular day I was off walking without my phone and I decided to go an extra loop. Still know the loop very well. Nothing awry at all. Midday in my neighborhood. And I start to have this like internal, oh my gosh, I don't have my phone on me. What if something were to happen to me right now? Yeah. And then I took a moment, like you're saying, and was like, Nicole, you spent decades of life not having a phone on you. Right. You had to print out directions to even get to places, you know, your neighborhood. And I had that moment of, oh, my gosh. And it was for me, I'm bringing it up next. It really highlighted how all of these small ways I've become or so I believe I've become reliant on this idea of having the possibility 
of being endlessly connected. I mean, of course, in that moment, it was this idea, like, what if something happened? And I would call, like, you know, the the help to help me. <laughs> of course, the other side of that, though, is our endless possibility to connect with friends, with loved ones, with people that we want to be connected to, and with strangers on the internet, people that we might not even want to be connected to. Yes. And I do believe in something that I am learning in my own journey as someone who born and raised in a city, Philadelphia, lived my 20s in New York. If you would have talked to me before I entered into this whole healing journey in my mid-30s, I would have told you I was living and dying in a city. I was a city girl for life. I loved the stimulation. I loved all the stuff that you could do. I loved having my very active social life and always a friend I could hang out with. And I love the idea of always being endlessly or having the opportunity to be endlessly in contact with someone or something. And what I'm coming to realize is I think most of us as humans, why of course we're on a spectrum from introvert to extrovert, meaning some of us need more internal time, time alone, time in solitude, than others get kind of fed by being socially interacting with other people. We all need both of those things. We need moments of connection, and we need to feel safe and secure enough to take moments away from connection in our own solitude. What I struggled through those several decades when I swore that I was going to live in this endlessly connected city, 24 hours a day, always something to do, was the reality for me is that doing, seeking, always having my phone ping or responding to a text immediately was more of a testament of my state of nervous system dysregulation. I didn't feel safe in solitude or stillness. So I kept myself busy and busy in some circumstances, if not all, because we all live with technology in our pocket, is always available. So saying that to then say, I believe that technology, like most things, it's a tool, it's a thing, right? And I'll go as far to say, I don't believe it's going anywhere anytime soon. No. What is important, though, I think, is to be a conscious consumer, yeah. first just becoming present to how are we using technology. Because if it's keeping yourself endlessly busy, not to shame ourselves, because likely that's a protection, right? There's something emotional in those moments where you're going to scroll on your phone that feels too stressful or overwhelming. So scrolling feels safer. For me, this would come up a lot, too, in my relationships, where in childhood, I didn't learn, I didn't have a sense of safety and security that I could take different degrees of space away from my loved ones. Space because I just wanted or needed to do something on my own, explore, explore my own interests. Space because I'm energetically tired and I don't have the ability to show up and care or support. Both are completely natural. For me, space in my childhood relationships meant a lack of safety. Because in childhood, again, we all need someone to show up and care for us. And my mom in particular would use space or the silent treatment that many of us, I think, have experienced in reaction to her own emotional upset. When she was upset or overwhelmed by whatever was happening or activated in her based on what I was doing or what I wasn't doing, whatever it was at any given moment, overwhelmed by how she was feeling, she would shut down and go into that silent treatment mode. But for me, the learning was space in relationships is dangerous. It means someone's upset with you. It means a possible loss of this connection. And assuming the relationship was important to me, the responsibility, again, continuing to tie all these pieces together that yeah. I had to see for myself 
was I was connected to my phone. Anytime a text or an email or a phone call pinged, especially from particular people, I felt pressured, compelled, like I needed to respond to either let them know that we're okay and I'm not, not upset with you or to check in and make sure that they're not upset with me and that the relationship is okay. So for me, becoming conscious of that pattern then allowed me to begin to create a new, more conscious relationship with not only technology in general, with communication, with my phone. And I do think, to really simplify it, a lot of us have these deep-rooted beliefs, many of which were impacted by our earliest experiences, relationships. Many of us now are being even more validated by technology and the possibility of continuing right, to be connected in all of these ways. Though the more conscious we become of how we're using these tools, if you will, then I think the more intentional we can be because there are many of us that are using the endless ability to be disconnected via social media, being texting and in conversation 24 hours a day. I think many of us are using that or that's those habits are more reflective, right, of earlier habits of inabilities to deal or tolerate that spectrum of connection and solitude. Man, you touch on so many things. I love it. It's just awesome. I love that you hone in on habits. I think habits are so important, but I also relate that back to skills as well, because there were things that your parents didn't have to give you. It's the things that you saw and that you didn't see. And so there's things that we learn and we just never learned. And so you might mm -hmm. find yourself feeling emotionally immature in your 30s, in your 40s as a grown adult. And you're like, why am I so left behind? Why have I been this failure to launch? Why haven't I, why can't I meet or exceed where my peers are at this stage of life? And, and you really have to go into and just figure these things out for yourself. Like what's going on inside of me and why, why do I feel this way? I think the beautiful gift of that curious inquiry for a lot of us can be the opportunity to relieve the deep-rooted shame that lays, I think, at the foundation right of a lot of this. This belief, when I can't break these habits, when I can't create the life that I would like for myself, I think a lot of us entertain this deep idea that the reason is because we're not worth it, because there's something constitutionally misaligned between who I am and what I think I want or what I'm even trying to create. And this, again, goes back to that idea of this identity and these deep-rooted beliefs and how when things happened or didn't happen to our wanting or needing in childhood, in that emotionally immature developmental state, especially in the earliest years from birth until age seven, when our mind is still always trying to make sense of the world around us to gain a sense of security, control, to understand our place in the world, the only sense, and I love that you even threw out that word developmentally immature, because I think sometimes people can hear that as a, as a, a front. And that's, that's just a state of development that we're talking about here. And in yeah. that early state of immature development, we quite literally can't zoom out and can't view circumstances and life and experiences in a mature way to understand that 
the factors that impact our, our caregivers' presence and attunement to us and our needs are factors that are completely outside of our control. The only sense that our developmentally immature mind can make of the happenings in our world, so their presence or absence or however it is that they are present or absent to us, we land on the belief that it is something about us, which led me, just again, continuing to use myself as the illustration here, in that emotional absence with my mom not able to attune to me except in moments where I'm performing, achieving, doing, which is no surprise why you heard me just a couple minutes ago, right? I came to the end of my to-do list and where's the feeling I'm looking for, right? In absence of that, I assumed that my worthiness was contingent on what I did, not in just being who I was. So at our core, which driving a lot of these habits, I do believe, is a sense of unworthiness, unlovability, incompatibility, whatever it is, coupled then with the shame, right? All of the direct and indirect messaging that we received that we've came to understand is the reason why, right? The intrinsic flaw or imperfection. So all the things that I wasn't able to achieve at are shameful. All these other aspects of my being have become shameful, something that I don't want to vulnerably show anyone else. And then so the cycle continues, right? In self-protection, assuming that we are the problem, yes. we feel shameful, continue to create not the reality that we want in the world. And then we take that as validation that the reality that we want or are thinking about wanting isn't meant for us. Yeah, well, I have all the mm -hmm. evidence to support that I'm broken. So it has to be true because that's always been my experience. Exactly. And I feel like that also kind of leads us into this place of where we make this common statement for our romantic relationships, where I always tend to date avoidance or a particular type of person. We get stuck in this like loop of relationships. So how can somebody begin to break free of that particular loop? And the breaking free, right? The embodied steps to create change or the yeah. new action points begin when we do notice. Right When we do take that moment or many moments to pause and find the patterning in yeah, our relationships. It, it, it takes, takes a lot. <laughs> it takes and, – and I'm saying that because <laughs> within that process, yeah. as all things, right, the, the process that we love to hate, it is not just, oh, I, I'm aware that this is the person. Within that process, for, for most of us at least, are deeper emotional processes of many times grieving oh, well, gosh, look at the type of relationship I've continued to find myself in. What needs am I getting met? What needs am I not getting met? If we do have an awareness of, oh, well, they came from this patterning, came from those earliest relationships. So that means that in these core developmental times in my life, right, I didn't have what I wanted or what I needed available to me. How, what a loss, what a loss of relationship Many of us, I think, come into then contact with, right, when we do see the role we're playing, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm picking a relationship that's not creating fulfillment in my life, that might be creating chaotic patterns, you know, of intense emotions or just a complete lack of emotion that kind of more disconnected. And then I think another round of grief is, oh my gosh, look how much life I've now spent <laughs> that, recreating and picking, right, this person. That one. 
And look at how much life has now. This is what had happened to me when I woke up, if you will, in my mid-30s and I realized how absent I had been. Yes, I've been marching on all of these pathways to achievement, but I wasn't really fully present to what was driving me on that pathway. Yeah, you're, if I was, you're successful, capable, competent. You're getting the job done. You're making these things happen in your life. Right. So, and not realizing that I was going through the motions of it. Yeah which then left me about three decades of life. And I talk about this often because a byproduct of not being present, as simple as this it can sound, and I'm not simplifying it, is often the inability to recall or to have the imprint of what it is that happened, right? If I'm a million miles away, checked out, dissociated, disconnected, I called on my spaceship when life's happening, that explained why for decades of my life, when I would hear friends or loved ones, even jokingly talking about something we did together several weeks ago, several months ago, several years ago, it was as if I was hearing the story and it became a running joke in my friend circles. Nicole doesn't remember anything for the first time. So when I realized that it wasn't something genetically wrong in my memory system, in my brain, as I had diagnosed it to be decades prior, that what was happening and my inability to recall my life was a byproduct of my dysregulated nervous system and the way that it adapted by disconnecting or dissociating at such an early age. Now I had about three decades to mourn a life, right, that I can't just readily access. And so I think, you know, for when we talk about becoming aware, that first step of creating all then the choices to change the dynamics that we're creating in our relationships so that we can have a more fulfilling, connected partnership, we're talking about everything that I just described kind of on the underneath side of that awareness piece. Oh my gosh, look what I'm becoming present to, wants and needs that have gone unmet, all of these habitual ways I've adapted and modified myself relationship and life experiences that I might have quote unquote lost out on or can't remember having. And so there's a lot in that, in that process of, of yeah. consciousness that then of course, empowering shift as always allows us to create change in those dynamics to say, okay, this is now what I'm present to. I can begin to make small new choices because I am going to work with the reality that my nervous system is going to say, Hey, wait a minute. The farther I try to overhaul my life or the farther I go out, of those habitual patterns, though I can go out of those habitual patterns. This means teaching my body how to become more stress or emotionally resilient so that I can do this, right? All of these concepts are now tying together so that I can make new choices that over time will string together in consistency to create those new habits. Is it okay for us to pull away from everybody for a period of time? Because we hear this a lot we go into solitude or isolation and I've done this and it was actually to my benefit because I separated myself and took a mental inventory of all the things that were going on in my life, the things I like, the things I don't like, and started to create this new picture for the future. Well, what is it going to look like? What am I doing? Where am I going? Why am I doing it? And then like you settling into these new habits and creating and cultivating them so that they become a part of just who you are and then it's like you're ready to actually come out of the house and interact with people <laughs> and interact with people again. Is it okay to do that? I'm, I'm giggling and I'm thinking about um, the term that you'll hear me using and other people have used is kind of when we 
become present or we go through our awakening, everything we've been talking about, right? All these habits and patterns begin this process of reevaluation, of turning inward, of maybe doing that deeper exploration that we that we talked about in the beginning. A lot of people have referenced that or called that a cocoon yes. stage, right? I'm going in, right? Kind of wrapping myself up in this internal percolator and then quite like the butterfly on the other side of it. And of course, the time frame differs in terms of how and when we'll feel ready to reemerge. But that's very much, I think, a beautiful picture to think of. And I think it's a really natural experience, not only, again, as individuals who that spectrum that I referenced earlier, I think in any given, there's seasons of, of living that I'm becoming aware of. And they don't map onto our nine to five work week or our, our even seasonal schedule. Sometimes they do kind of outside in terms of the weather or the elements. But what I mean when I say seasons is that that spectrum that I refer to. There's periods of time where we're, we energetically feel like we do want to. And sometimes it does map onto the colder months if we live in a climate where it changes, the winter, where we want to slow down, where we're naturally more introspective, where we don't have the energy, where we don't really want to go out and socialize or you know, put something out into the world. We want to sow our seeds or plant our seeds, I should say, and cultivate the soil and turn inward. And then that replenishment, I think of everything on kind of an energetic um, spectrum, when we replenish and revitalize our energy from slowing down, from stopping, from going inward, from becoming curious, from you know um, exploring ourselves in this new way, then naturally the cycle of energy, which is created nor destroyed, right? It just always is will want to, will replenish, will build back up. And then we will naturally want to be out in the world, socialize, create, serve in some way. So saying that to say, not only do I think it is a natural human experience is to be more of a seasonal being energetically over just a course of a year, a course of our lifetime, specifically when we are, you know, becoming aware of new things. For some of us, even breaking habits. One of the core foundational relational habits that I became aware of and created the commitment to continue to break in my current experience is coming from a boundaryless or what we call an enmeshed or a codependent home where I didn't feel that natural separation as a different individual. Everything kind of revolved around one family member's want or need, one family member's stressful or emotional experience. We kind of moved in a unit. And so becoming and exploring for myself how I, all of the different ways I continued that patterning into my current relationships and seeing those dynamics still present within my core family that I was now living quite in physical proximity to in Philadelphia. This was several years ago when all of this journey began for me. I made one of the most, if not the most difficult decisions at that time in my life and really throughout my life that I had made, which was to take physical separation, time away, really simply, from that core family, those core family relationships. Because every version of new boundaries of shift and change and dynamic that I'd become responsible and had attempted to make within those relationships I didn't feel that I was having the space I needed to even begin to, like you beautifully described, right? Turn inward to explore, to get clear on what I wanted, what I needed. I was so fused 
with how the choices that I would make or not make would impact my family, that I actually made that very difficult choice to take a physical separation. And of course, I'm sharing this not as a prescription by any means to answer even the question of, do we need time away? Does that mean that I go in my cocoon, cut off all contact from even my closest family members only to reemerge when I feel ready. No, absolutely not. I'm just not. saying it worked for me. <laughs> I'm just saying it worked for me and it was a necessity yeah. for me at that time in that, that space. And on the other side of it, taking, I think it ended up being about 18 months in separation. We've had the opportunity I've had with all of my family members separately as individuals and together as a family unit, had the opportunity to rebuild and to make our relationships now much more stronger, much more safer, much more secure, and much more ultimately authentic on the other side of it. So to simply answer your question, I do think separating ourselves in all of the different ways is natural. We feel that instinctually inside of us. I think, of course, it's an individual decision and determination, you know, whether or not we can, what aspects of our life we can separate from. And then, of course, actualizing those changes because what doesn't go away are all the deep rooted beliefs that kept me so connected to my family, so worried about the impact that I would have on them. So it didn't mean when I came to this conclusion that, okay, I do need time away and I made the decision and I sent the communication that internally I wasn't a mess because I was. I still had those beliefs, those worries. What will they think of me? Oh, they're probably exactly thinking that of me now. Will they even want a relationship with me on the other side of it? Right? All of that still exists and is intact which is again why it is up to us as individuals to not only determine what choices we have to make or separation or how inward we want to or need to go, then that's a journey in and of itself is to give ourselves the space to do what it is that we want and need because likely all those beliefs that have kept us from keeping the space are still very present in those moments. And, and do you find yourself still saying, this is me and this is you, just to remind yourself of that space? Absolutely. And again, even outside of the transformational shifts and dynamic that I have with my core family, I'm still presented with relationships, two of which I live in currently each and every day, right? So if not reflected in my in the family relationships, there's endless opportunities for me to get really clear in terms of where that point of separation is, because it's still very easy for me to take someone else's want, need, mood, their need for time away or separation and to allow it to bleed into how I feel, what I'm doing, what needs to happen next for me. Yeah, and what I want people to really get from this is that self-love should be considered more of a superpower. That as you go inward, as you do the work, as you become more of you and you become so good with you that you can recognize that what people give to you, you can challenge that. You can say, no, that's not for me. I understand how you might get there. I understand how you might feel that way. And I can have empathy for whatever or sympathy for what you're going through in this moment, but I don't have to take that on as me. And when you continue to do the work and you express that and people observe you and they watch you and they see what you're doing and they see how embodied you become, you're showing them what's possible for them. And it's not a guarantee that your family members are going to step up to the plate and start doing all these amazing things. It's not probably not going to happen, but there's people outside in your sphere of influence that they see you, whether it's on social media or in your in your real life. I always say sphere of influence, the 15 feet around you <laughs> as you go through the world, like the Sims, you have all these different interactions with others. And so they see you, they observe you, and they pick up that energy off of you 
of, wow, this person, I can see how connected and embodied they actually are. And is it perfect? No. Are we always embodied? Not really. But you find these places where you can go to and we utilize these new skills to get to that place. And I think that is so beautiful. And and Jason is really the truest way that we can impact the world around us. Because not only are we shifting, changing our dynamics with others, uh, I go into all of the, the science behind the shifts and the power that we can have, you know, scientifically, energetically, as we become more safe, more grounded, more secure in who we are, how we energetically literally do influence those around us, creating more safety and security for them to begin to explore themselves in a new way, to show up dynamically different. And just a third piece that I want to offer, because I think that nothing is as empowering as having that sphere of influence, beginning first with ourself, right? Having that safety in solitude, that internal security where we can hear about ourselves from the outside world, see ourselves reflected back, and then come back and say, hmm, let me try on these perceptions of me and let me determine whether or not this fits. And at the same time, having those trusted others to reflect back to us because we are and will forever be still even the most conscious of us blinded to ourself in many ways and perceptions and pieces of information where simply loved ones trusted loved ones have shared their experience of me consistently or in any given moment of time as much as instinctually initially right i want to refute it i want to say that's not wrong that's inaccurate you're seeing right there have been so many moments where if i hit that pause and i say okay nicole you might not like what you're hearing you might not want to hear that you were cold and abrasive in that moment because that's not what you were meaning to be but take a moment and hear why it is that this person that I've determined through tenure of relationship and experiences in said relationship, right? I can trust that they are committed to this relationship and what the, whatever context of it is to, you know, con- to continue into the future. I can therefore trust that they have both of our best interests at heart when this conversation is happening. There have been so many moments where begrudgingly taking then their information. And of course, this doesn't mean like we were sharing, taking everyone's information. Anytime a stranger offers their perception of you, you take it on and try it on for size. Of course not. But there have been so many transformational moments where when you do hear different perceptions, even hurtful ones from that core sphere of influence, those trusted relationships that we are finding and or creating in our life, that that can be so valuable because in that moment, right, a little bit of a blinder has been opened up. It might not have been what you meant, but if you can trust, right, that that's how it landed and then try it on for size, you know what, I did say that. I was a little curt in my tone or, you know, I I was a little passive aggressive. That's my, one of my big ones. And I like to say, oh, I'm just saying it assertively. No, I'm not. I'm being passive aggressive in that moment. I've had very well-meaning loved ones say, you know what, Nicole, no, that's not how this is landing for me. So I think there's so much value in that side of this too. But all of this, of course, comes when we create the space for 
right. for many of us, the cultivation and creation of safety and security, not only within ourselves, but within our relationships too. Well, Nicole, I can't thank you enough for spending the past hour with me. If you guys haven't already gotten How to Be the Love You Seek by Dr. Nicole LaPura, you should definitely go out and get it. There's so many golden nuggets throughout the book, as well as exercises that'll carry you through your journey. Nicole, is there anything that you'd like to share with the group and then tell us how to get a hold of you and what workshops do you currently have available? I appreciate it. Thank you, uh, Jason, for having this conversation with me. Thank you all for tuning in. Um, anyone I think is who is interested in in the topics that you talk about um, on your platform, who is interested in, you know, kind of learning our blueprint, tearing down our blueprint. I think it's just so much to celebrate uh, in so many ways because kind of as we began, change is not easy. So I 100% celebrate each and every one of you who is curious about whether or not change is even possible. And of course, the many of you that then are on this journey. Um, so the book itself is available where all major book retailers, even a lot of local bookshops I know have picked up some copies. I have a website up, howtobethelovyouseek.com that does highlight some retailers that I know will have copies on hand, but definitely check out anywhere you like to buy your books locally. Uh, I have a global membership, virtual membership. It's called Self Healers Circle. It just actually opened and closed for enrollment. We open three times a year, so it'll open again in a couple months. You can check out selfhealerscircle.com for more information on that membership where several times a month actually we join together for many different types of virtual workshops in many different content areas. So for any and all information about what the circle is and of course how to jump on the wait list for next time, you can check out selfhealerscircle.com. And of course, at this point, across all of the different social media platforms, there is some presence of, of the handle, the holistic psychologist. So however it is that you like to consume your free social media content, absolutely come join the community. We're having these conversations each and every day and having incredible community members to engage with in the comment section. I love it. Nicole, thank you so much. 